were you uh, were you raised in like a spiritual or religious household, or is that something you kind of found later um, on in life? I had some religious uh, relatives. My grandfather was a, a mason, a high degree. Oh, cool. But my dad was an atheist, and my mom is kind of like a um, laissez-faire, um, like Presbyterian. You know, yeah. so not really in the immediate household, but there mm-hmm. was some spiritual influence in my family. Um, but I was always fascinated by it, maybe because it wasn't around, you know. Right. Um, I wasn't really exposed to it, so I kind of, I think I sought it out a little bit more um, vigorously. What uh, At what point in your life did you start seeking it out, and when were you first introduced to Hinduism? I think, well, Hinduism came a little bit later, but I was in, I was introduced to, like, Eastern philosophy through martial arts when I was really young. Oh, cool. I was in Judo. Nice. And I was, like, obsessed with, like you know, Japanese culture. And, mm-hmm. uh, um, I took about five years of judo and, um, I had some friends that were taking other kind of martial mm-hmm. arts. So we would kind of like trade our like teachers, like stories and stuff okay. like that. So that was like, I think my introduction to like a lineage, okay. um, of, of teaching. And, um, you know, obviously I was young and I wanted to get into martial arts as like a, kind of self-defense and it was cool because like all the kung fu shows were yeah. on on saturday yeah, and stuff like that but awesome. immediately i realized like there was like a strong amount of discipline in it and uh that kind of like it was the first thing that i chose to take a discipline myself where you know you you're forced to go to school and do all these other things and you're disciplined by your folks but that, that was like a uh, a choice to discipline yourself with this mm-hmm. martial arts practice and I think that kind of led into Hinduism. Uh, the Hinduism thing came. Uh, I stopped eating meat. I was I was active in like the punk rock and hardcore scene, and uh, vegetarianism was becoming popular with like straight edge bands like Youth of Today and stuff right. like that. And um, I went to an animal rights benefit, and there were some Krishnas there uh, giving out prashad, and they gave me the Higher Taste book, the vegetarian cookbook. Later on that week, I came back home. And I was here in New Jersey and uh, hanging out on the boardwalk on the ocean front where, where all the kids would hang out. And uh, a Krishna devotee approached me. He used like his, uh, I've told the story a bunch of times, but it's a good one. Uh, they, they do it in uh, Grateful Dead parking lots. They'll come up to you and be like, you're under arrest oh, yeah. <laughs> to disarm you, you know. And then, right. and then he said for smiling and gave me the jacket off thing but but i was like oh wow you know i just met some devotees for the first time and i, I was interested and he's like well that's great that means it's meant to be why, why don't you come come up to my van i got some japa beads i'll teach you the maha mantra so he taught me how to chant the maha mantra on japa cool. beads and then a few weeks later i went to the temple for the first time and i was frequenting the um the feasts i had a friend that actually moved into the temple so i spent some time with him and then kind of fell out of that after a couple of years because I was young. I was 16. I was that discipline. I, you know, I was like trying to become a monk at that age and I just wasn't ready to do it and I didn't have the right mindset. And then um, about, you know, 15 years later, I I rediscovered it and uh, met my, my teacher now, my guru now. And uh, I've been with him for like the last 15 years. Can you uh, tell me a little bit more about your guru and how you met him? And yeah. How does one go about getting a guru, especially in think, the 21st century? Yeah, there's um, there's a, a lot of interesting 
ideas about like the guru will present himself when the inner guru mm-hmm. is ready to meet the outer guru. Um, so in 2007, a friend of mine who I hadn't, I'd kind of lost touch with, it was kind of peripheral friend. We were never close friends, but a guy came, came back into my life out of the blue and was like, Hey, uh, have you ever worked with any plant medicines? Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'd, I've taken mushrooms and stuff. He's like, no, I mean, I mean like ayahuasca. And I was like, well, I've always been interested, but I never have, you know, I, I'd have read the Yage letters from, uh, William Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg and stuff like that. So, uh, he, inv- he got me invited to my first ceremony. So I drank ayahuasca and had, it was like, immediately I was like oh, Krishna, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I felt Krishna's presence. And then the second ceremony I went to, he, he told me about this other shaman was the shaman that actually became my guru. Um, very cool in that ceremony. Uh, it was a traditional Peruvian style ayahuasca ceremony. And, but at the end he chanted the Gayatri mantra on a Shruti box. And I was just like, oh, this, I'm staying here. This is my guy. So as time went on, he started introducing more Hinduism into the ceremonies. And then after the ceremonies, like the next morning he would do, um, Homa and puja and stuff like that and he started teaching the community puja and i became closer with him and i wound up traveling to india with him and started teaching me proper sadhana practice and you know as his his practice expanded so did the rest of the communities you know a lot of people that were just there to drink ayahuasca kind of fell off and the people that stuck with him that were really um interested in like making this like a life practice and not just like a weekend thing or a yearly thing where they would go to these retreats um, stayed along and we have like a pretty small community that, that work with him. He's in Spain and he has a Shiva temple in Spain, uh, cool. that that's a hermitage. Awesome. It's interesting that you bring up, uh, plant-based medicines and psychedelics and whatnot. Cause I kind of feel as if those are maybe, uh, specifically with like psilocybin and DMT, they kind of act like a catalyst to experience one's true self and I forget the uh, exact quote, but it's something along the lines of like, to know one's true self is to know God and uh, seems very prevalent. So it's, it's interesting yeah. to talk about that. Yeah. And, um, you know, like the Rishis who were who the, the saints that basically brought the stories of all the gods to the people and they, they had them through these revelations and many of them were working with plants. Mm-hmm. It was Soma, you know, right. in, in the Vedas. Um, they refer to it as Soma. They, they go deep into mm-hmm. the, the Soma ceremony um, and the the visions that they have and the revelations that they're having. And many of these, the deities that we now worship, I think were, were connected in these, in these ceremonies. So I think the plants were really present in the original teachings mm-hmm. of what we know as more orthodox Hinduism that, they don't really work with the plants much anymore. Right. So it was amazing that my teacher took a completely different course and then wound up back there again. And he's one person, probably one of the few people I know that are offering those two things, you know, in concert with one another. And it, it, it's really amazing. And I feel really, really blessed to be able to right. be in that circle, you know. How often do you get to see your guru? Um, a couple times a year? A couple or? times a year with COVID. It's been a little right. bit harder. But we did travel together a little bit during the, the pandemic when there, there was like the when it lowered the spikes lowered and stuff. 
But usually, uh, you know, I get to see him like two or three times a year. Cool. You know, I'll go there and then he usually comes to the States and we'll go to India together. We went to, um, we went and visited the um, caves in Bulgaria recently. Cool. Yeah. Do you have any uh, favorite temples or cities or spots in India that you like to frequent? I'm hoping to go back again for the second time this summer. So yeah, making a little mental checklist. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll, outside the interview, I'll, I'll definitely let you know some spots. But Sweet. two of my favorite, I go, I go to the north and the south, mm-hmm. and I Varanasi is one that's place that's mm-hmm. always been like I go every time I, I go to India. I don't she think I've ever city. yeah, it's the oldest living city in mm-hmm. the world, and it's it's really a complicated. Um, city to navigate spiritually because there's a lot of chaos there. Right. But underneath all of that is there's like a direct line to uh, powerful concentration and powerful sadhana. And like you can, my, my practice really increased when I started practicing there. Um, there's another place in South India in Tiruvannamali called, uh, well, that's the name of the city, but that's where Mount Arunachala is. That's where Ramana Maharshi's ashram is, and that's where he was. Uh, he gained enlightenment. Very cool. Um, so those are the two places I go usually, nice. north and south. Uh, the path that you're following—that's Sanatana Dharma, correct? Yeah. I th- well, Sanatana Dharma is basically all of the practices okay. together. Okay. Um, what I'm following is probably considered tantric. Tantric. Okay. Uh, yeah, because we're using a lot of the different elements and all the di- we're worshiping all the gods. You know, you have Vaishnavas and sh- and Shaivites right. and Shaktis, but we worship all of them. And a lot of our practices are tantric, um, but it's in line. Our lineage, uh, our Sadguru is from South India, and he's part of the Mahasiddhas which are like the perfected ones there. And a lot of the, what we know is Ayurvedic medicine came from Sita medicine. A lot of, uh, a lot of the scriptures in South India, the Tamil scriptures came from the Sitas. So he's part of that. So it's, um, it's a really kind of, uh, unorthodox in a lot of ways because it is tantric and, you know, there's no specific temple and the Sampradaya is kind of spread out and, and uh, it's not as like, you know, there's certain lineages in Sanatana Dharma where they can trace each teacher, you know, like right to Krishna, you know, like the Vaishnavas can do that. Ours is a little bit more spread out. There's a lot of mystery. There was a lot of stuff that was happening in the jungles and a lot of stuff that was happening in the mountains that never got recorded, you know, so I'm part of that lineage, you know, so it, it, uh, I'm, I'm fortunate that I am, you know, and sometimes it's, you know, people have like a, you know, kind of a pedigree of what their teachers, teachers, teachers did and things like that. But ours is like a, you kind of, um, the mystery unfolds as you learn more. Was that kind of what, uh, I guess, ca- uh, captivated your influence with the, uh, the tantric movement instead of, uh, where it encompasses everything rather yeah. than just like one particular yeah. sub uh, <clears throat> facet of Hinduism? Yeah. And I, I don't think one is better than the other, mm-hmm. but it's different. And I think that fits my approach a lot more, you know, like, um, the problems, the things I struggled with in regular Gaudiya Vaishnavism, um, you know, aren't in the tantric, you know, there's a lot of rules. I mean, there's still, we, we still follow a, a pretty strict code, but there's a little bit more freedom of expression and, um, we don't, our, our belief is that we're, you know, like where a lot of other 
schools of thought is like the world is Maya and you have to get away from the illusion to gain liberation where it, our belief is that the, everything in the world is a, is by the grace of the divine, the divine mother. And, uh, that, uh, acting within the world in, in your daily duties, you know, using the, the true essence of Tantra is the, I mean, if an English, um, definition is to weave. So you're taking all these elements and weaving them together and making, yeah, merging them. And, uh, I like that, you know, and to merge a this practice that we just did this puja Mm -hmm. into my regular life of tattooing and art and things like Mm -hmm. that. The tantric, uh, modality works really well for me. With the current setup of our society, very commercialized, uh, and all that, do you think it's important to have some sort of devotion to some sort of spiritual practice, whether that be a higher version of oneself, uh, or a God, whatever you want to refer to that as, do you think that's important in order to have some sort of peace and like maybe tranquility and just a uh, purpose in life? Yeah, a hundred percent. I think that, uh, you know, like we can, we can talk about it in the macrocosm of the, the regular world. Mm-hmm you know, of the, you know, of the world that we see in television and in newspapers and media and what, what many people think of as society. And then you can also look at it in the microcosm of the spiritual aspirants in this, right. You know, like, and so for me, when I see like in the new age movements that where people can go to a weekend teacher training and get Mm -hmm. their Shakti Pete, uh, you know, or, you know, get their, uh, a Shakti pot that's called, you know, or get their name, you know, and not really do much mm-hmm. to, to achieve this kind of spiritual right. title, you know, and it becomes this like kind of tourism. Nothing, there's no advancement in anything, but especially in spirituality without any kind of effort, you know, right. and that effort is what's considered devotion or bhakti, mm. you know, cause you're not going to make the effort if you don't feel the love in your heart towards right. something, you know, it'd be a waste of time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think, I think it's important to have like a consistent practice that you take seriously. And I think that's the way that you're going to see improvement in your life. Cause if you just kind of uh, shelve it as like, Oh, I just did this. And now I'm this kind of person. It's not going to bear any kind of fruit. Right. Uh, could you maybe explain a little bit more in detail about the puja that you just recently did? And mm-hmm. I have like a basic understanding of what everything mm-hmm. was, but I'd love to have like a, a more broad knowledge of what was happening. And then if you could maybe expand into like chanting and mantras mm-hmm. and what's the purpose of that and why one might chant and what that's like the point of it and what you're trying to achieve with that. Yeah. So um, a puja is a, is a worship mm-hmm. of God, you know, and by worshiping God through use of mantra and uh, yantra, which was like what, you know, I was drawing on the floor, offering like mm-hmm. rice and flowers to um, use of uh, mudras and the use of like a, a deity, you mm-hmm. know, right. there's um, you're, you're using these kind of modalities to bring your mind towards the divine and you're recognizing yourself within that divine presence because you're the one performing the rites. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So um, there's visualizations that are happening through all of it. 
there's uh, reflection, there's, um, you know, you're using all your senses to bring your attentiveness um, towards the divine presence in your own life. And by doing that, it's going to open your heart. It's going to, you know, um, there's like different levels that you go through as you learn it. Mm -hmm. One of the first things you learn is how to sit. You know what I mean? Like that's the hardest part. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody does. It took, when I first started, I could sit for two minutes and Mm -hmm. I'd have to stretch my legs. But as you learn and as you sit, you know, uh, the pains and the discomforts, you're able to overcome them. And that's, that's like one of the first things that you offer is your posture. That's an offering, you know, you're offering fruit or food or you're offering Mm -hmm. uh, rice and grains, you're offering fire, you're offering different kinds of paste and things like that. Mm -hmm. But the first thing you offer is your posture, you know, and your attentiveness, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's a, it's a really um, amazing interpersonal, unique experience of connecting with the God within you. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And, you know, it's, it's not so much about the external, Many people can do it through silence, you know, mm-hmm. personally, I need like the, the different kind of things to kind of lock my mind into it, you know, Same. and the deeper I go, the more kind of more of the conditioning and my own habits and patterns kind of get worn away a little bit, you know, and I'm, I'm you know, and the more as, as you practice, um, those, the pattern of doing puja becomes more in your life. And then you can take that puja, that same attentiveness, and I could bring that to work and, and practice that same kind of attentiveness that I was doing in the puja and apply that to my tattooing mm-hmm. and the way I treat my customers and the way I actually do the tattoo or the way I might make a painting or a drawing. So, every, you know, the goal is that your life becomes the puja. Mm-hmm. So that little, like, 45 minutes or half hour that we just spent, you know, in contact with the divine... I could try to bring that and incorporate it into my entire life, you know, and there's things, you know, even like the night before when, you know, when you're, when you're doing a, a what's called a sankalpa, which is a determination, say, if I'm going to do this puja for 30 days, I need to be efficient with my time. I need to be efficient with what I'm eating. Um, I don't want to drink a lot of water before I start. Cause then I don't have to get up and use the bathroom, you know? So, right. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, pre-production that goes into it and, um, foresight and it's not just, you know, like, you know, the, the, the preparation for the puja is just as important as the actual, um, act of doing it. Sounds like a really great way to be more mindful and just present in the now instead of stressing and worrying about like, Oh, I got to do this for work. I got to do that. Yeah. Uh, do you have any other suggestions as far as like, not only that, but is there anything else I could do to get better at being more present and just self-aware? Yeah. Um, I mean, one, one great way is focus on the breath. You know, mm-hmm. it's like the, the breath is so important and vital and everything, all the, all the religious teachings and all the, all the stories and all the aspects of Dharma are all connected with the breath, Mm -hmm. the human breath. And, you know, the, you can go, you can peel the onion so far, you know, that you get into the different kind of pranic channels and vital forces that run throughout your body that connect with your mind, you know, you know, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that like everything, 
this experience that you're having when you're trying to become more attentive or more um, mindful, um, it's still happening in your own mind. Mm-hmm. You know, like the mindfulness is your own mind. The difference between mindfulness and ideas and thoughts is that consciousness is involved. And by doing puja or by focusing on your breath or being silent or just trying to sit by yourself um, and clear your head of all your thoughts, you're inviting consciousness into your life, you know. And by with that consciousness, it, it can open up the possibility for just about anything. It kind of goes along the lines of like we are our own biggest enemies. We're fighting against ourselves to be a better version of ourselves. Exactly. I mean, that's what all all the all the Sanatana Dharma stories of like all the weapons that all mm-hmm. the gods have. You know, those are all f- to fight off demons. All those demons are actually thoughts. Mm-hmm. In the Devi Mahatmyam, which is the story of Durga, you know, and and the goddess of how she defeats all these these demons each one is just a thought one's um self-deprecation one's self-conceit mm-hmm. one is too much or and too little <laughs> sin- sinful eyes which is desire you know they all they all go to the mind you know the the battle's inward the bhagavad gita the the battle of Kurukshetra, the mm-hmm. that that's happening internally battle within, yeah. yeah and the, the battle happens outside there's the external battles there's war there's pestilence there's fighting but the true war is in inside because if you can defeat the inner demon you can defeat any out, mm-hmm. outward demon you know or the outward demons can defeat you and it doesn't even matter right because if if you're if you find peace in your heart you can't be that can't be overcome by anybody mm-hmm. but yourself right uh could you tell me a bit more about shiva and the uh consciousness of infinite goodness yeah so shiva um the one of the mantras that i was mm-hmm. chanting om tat purushaya vidmahe mahadevaya dimahi tano rudra prachodaya um shiva is the consciousness uh purusha and then there's pakriti which is um is like the force of nature yeah. So you have the consciousness and the force force of nature. Um, the lingam, the the lingam is the consciousness. The yoni is the prakriti or the purusha and the prakriti. When they when they unite, the male and the female, the consciousness and the force of nature. That's when you have the true um, potential for anything. So the consciousness of infinite goodness, Shiva known as the destroyer or the dissolver. Shiva is the one that takes away all the things that are is, that's going to stop you from being reborn or mm-hmm. uh, from being enlightened or finding liberation or, or gaining merit in your life. So that's why he's considered the consciousness of infinite goodness because he, there's no judgment in any mm-hmm. of it. You know, like uh, Shiva is surrounded by goblins and demons you know and his his hair is matted and with dreadlocks because he's not participating in society mm-hmm. and all the other gods are covered in gold and stuff he's covered in seeds right and plants and he has snakes around his neck yeah. you know he, he's the ultimate expression of fearlessness mm-hmm. and that fearlessness equates to the consciousness of infinite goodness because there's no judgment there's no fear 
there's no denial. It, it's it's complete acceptance that this world is transitory, but there's something that always remains solid, and that's Shiva, and that's the consciousness of infinite goodness. You mm-hmm. can always return to that. You know, yeah, that's awesome. Um, let's see. So um, I know that astrology kind of weaves in and out of like Hinduism and everything, but obviously there's, I, I don't know, maybe you could call it like a split between what is actually like astrology and what people in the West consider astrology with like, you know, star signs and like daily horoscopes. Could you maybe talk about like what is actual Vedic astrology? So Vedic astrology is more in tune with the lunar than the solar, Okay, you know? So mm-hmm. your sign has a lot more to do with not just the time you, the day you were born, but also the time you were born okay. and where you were born. Okay. You know? So they, of course, they took it to the, to the ultimate, to the, to the point of your, uh, conception and existence on, in this planet, in this life. And a true great Vedic astrologer will be able to dig deep into your past life and into, into your future, mm-hmm. but also helping you giving you the prescriptions that you need to align you with all the planets, all the planetary influences, um, all the negative and uh, energies that come from planetary influences, and then to be able to reap the benefits, all the positive things that come from the planetary influences as well. So if you're born in one house, you know, where, you know, there's like, I think there's, seven or eight different houses. I'm not an expert on okay. this, but I actually just had mine done, re- you know, a couple of days ago and she was oh, cool. amazing. Um, so if you're born in this one house, you know, at one time in one place in the world, certain planets are going to influence you in, in a great way. And other ones are going to be, you're going to struggle with a good Vedic astrologer will, through, um, different kinds of meditation, different mantras, different diets, um, will help you align with uh, a practice that will help you uh, reverse those negative influences or deal with them or cope mm-hmm. with them and get them out. And they'll, they'll be able to tell you like the arcs in your life where, where things are going to be great or where things are not going to go wrong. So you'll be able be able to prepare for things, you know, or things will make more sense to you. Like, well, you know, you might blame yourself for things that you had no control over. Right. It was in the, it's in the stars. Okay. You know? it, or it's in the, <laughs> you had no control over it. It was predestined. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So yeah, the, uh, a, a good Vedic astrologer will, will give you the rundown of like what, what your planetary influences are, where your, where your uh, strengths and weaknesses are, but then also will help you give you prescriptions and how to work with them, you know? Okay. Uh, a bit of a loaded question, but, what do you think, if any, is the purpose of this plane of existence in the life we live? And what do you think happens when we, uh, when we pass? Um, you know, it's like I said, a very loaded question, yeah. but in your opinion, what, in my what opinion, the purpose of this birth is to understand the self, Okay. you know, um, and if you practice and dedicate your life to self-awareness and attentiveness to yourself, there might be liberation at the end of this life. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't work out that way and I'm wrong, it's a good practice to have in living, Mm -hmm. you know? Right. So I don't see a lot of difference between life and death, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, just because the body 
is no longer here or no longer functioning. I don't think that the essence of who we are ends ever or or begins ever, you know, it's connected to that consciousness Mm -hmm. of infinite goodness, which is endless, you know? So I think it, I think the purpose of this birth is to find our way back to that consciousness. Okay. Very interesting. It's kind of like the duality of everything, really. Everything has a duality to it, whether sure. it's Shiva, you, me. Well, that the, so. the funny thing about the du- duality, what we te- what we practice in tantric is non-duality. Okay. So there is the duality. There's the opposites. Okay. There's always the opposites. Hmm. But the triangle, like that, that's that's what unites the two opposites. It's me, you, and the relationship between us. Gotcha. And that's why Shiva is holding the trident. Mm-hmm. It's the, it's the threes and all the, the all, yeah. And Shiva is the Lord of the three worlds. Um, Om, A-U-M, mm-hmm. waking, uh, dreaming and deep sleep, the three states of consciousness, everything is in the threes. Okay. And once you start becoming in tune with the threes, the two, the pair pairs of opposites will, will be cast away and the pairs of opposites. That's what, causes a, a lot of grief in our lives you know mm-hmm. they're like like i said earlier the the demons that were named too much and too little mm-hmm. you know right. either you don't do enough or you do too much you know and a way to balance that is incorporating that third aspect in and that's that's the trinity the trimorti the mm-hmm. the um creation sustaining and dissolving mm-hmm. you know if you only have creation and death life and death and you don't have the sustenance in the middle of it your life is going to be mundane mm-hmm. you're, you're going to live a life of fear you're going to be born to mm-hmm. to be afraid to die but if you have the sustaining aspect in involved in that which is lord vishnu the sustainer mm-hmm. the highest god you'll be able to overcome that those two opposites and you'll be able to live in peace as there's balance in the three the the, two, the one and the two aren't balanced very cool and Shiva is the one that kind of holds them all up, so to speak, right? Yeah. It's the one that keeps the balance going. Yeah, right yeah because everyone wants to live. No one wants to die. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, honestly, I think that's most of the questions I have. So I'll just that's leave great. you with this. Um, do you have any advice that you'd either give a younger version of yourself or that you want to leave with anybody that might listen to this? Yeah. Um, don't be hard on yourself. Mm-hmm. Um be forgiving of yourself uh slow is fast in the evolution of your discipline and your your um your journey you know don't force anything don't rush anything um and yeah i I think just to to be mindful that like there's no real right or wrong Mm -hmm. way to do things you just have to accept you know and and be willing to love yourself 